Good morning. If you uh, need a Bible or an outline or a pen or anything like that, uh, please raise your hand and we will get those to you right away. Uh, those will help you a lot as you're uh, following along today. Um, also, we love, we love small kids, especially we've got a couple extra visitors today. Feel free to let your kiddos uh, hang out, run, run wild uh, to whatever you, discretion you have there. And uh, if you'd like to take them over to the nursery, we have that. We also have kind of a little bit more of a rumpus room there uh, uh, right out the door and to your right. Uh, so feel free to, to leave your kids, uh, let them be a part of this, or feel free to use, uh, use the nursery facilities. Either way, we're going to have some fun. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm a leader here at Grace Fellowship Church. And uh, I myself have taken advantage of that nursery because I have uh, two little girls. My wife and I have a, a two-year-old and a little girl who's now four months old, and I'm having a pretty good time with that, usually. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but here's the thing. This new chapter in my life, as fun as that can be, has revealed aspects about my character that I don't really like. Has, has that ever happened to you? You meet somebody and you find something new about how you really are, and it drives you a little crazy. Um, one, one thing I've learned is that I fear the future a lot more than I, I thought I did. You know, my, my, my future and my, my wife's future and, and our, our children's future. Uh, for example, as, I, as I'm putting my girls down to sleep, sometimes I just kind of worry, like, are they going to turn out all right? You know, is that, is that going to happen? Because here's the thing. Thoughts like that have led to fears, and those fears have cost me sleep, because I can work, and I can work, and I can work, and I can try to do good, but I can't control their future, and I can't control my future. Like, there's only so much that I can do. And that tension is often where the fear comes in for me. And here's the thing. Even if you're not a parent, my guess is you can, you can acknowledge that you'd, you'd like to know the future. You'd like to know how stuff's going to turn out. That would, that, would be, that would be a win. Um, maybe you wonder stuff like, you know, am I going to get married? You know, is that, is that going to happen? Or you think, like, what's this country going to look like in 20 years? Or, or 10 years, or even five? You just wonder that. And, and you fear, and it, and it costs you sleep. Um, we constantly do that, and one author actually likens us to people who won't stop talking during the movie. You know, the movie's on, and... And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And you just kind of elbow the guy next to you. And you're like, what's going to happen when that door opens and they walk through it? The person says, just watch the movie. Um, see, here's the thing. We, we want to know how our lives will play out, even though we obviously can't. And as Solomon is saying all throughout Ecclesiastes, it's vanity. Like, it provides you no profit. You lose sleep and you gain nothing. And um, so the big question is this. If we can't predict how our lives on earth are going to play out, how should we live? This sermon will answer that question, hopefully more questions. We'll be covering Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 14 through chapter 9, verse 10. And uh, that's on page 358 in your church Bible if you want to go there now. But Ecclesiastes starting in 814. And we're going to talk about two points that are on your outline. The first point is the wrong response to vanity. And the second point is the right response to vanity. So we're going to start with point one, which will take us from 814 
to, uh, to 9-1. And I'm going to read that now. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So here's your first point, the wrong response to vanity, and it's to trust in yourself to do God's work. And uh, so Solomon, in verse 14, begins with an example of everyday vanity and its injustice. I mean, consider the concept of injustice, and for a moment, not just when it's kind of on your Facebook timeline, but when it's like in your face. Like when it actually hits home. Somebody blames you for something, and you're like, I didn't do that thing. And you're paying the penalty as though you did. Or somebody just cheats you out of something that, that you earned. They stole something from you. Solomon says, rightly, that this is vanity. But here's the thing. What do we do with that? You know, it's pointless, but it's not going to leave. We can't just ignore it. And we can't stop people from hurting us. And so Solomon gives a very un-American recommendation in verse 15. He says to be joyful. He says, not just that, to eat and drink and be joyful in the midst of toil. Because it, the toil, will be with you your whole life. But guess what? The joy can be with you your whole life too. We're going to cover more of what living joyfully looks like in point two. But for now, Solomon had just kind of introduced it to just kind of spur you a bit. And we're going to go back to the vanity, the uh, endless toil. Solomon uses injustice as an example of a bigger vanity, the lack of control we have over the outcome of our lives. You know, like I can't control if somebody is going to hurt me or not. In my case, it's like the fear that I have for the well-being of my daughters, the lack of control that I have. And so what does this lead to? In verse 16, Solomon sees people in response to vanity Working and working and working and not sleeping. He continues in verse 17. They're trying to understand what God is doing, but they can't, no matter how hard they try. So in other words, here's what's going on. They're responding to vanity wrongly by adding vanity on top of vanity. So that's vanity. They're putting vanity on top of more vanity and expecting good results, and that doesn't work. I'm going to take a few minutes and, and flesh this out for us. Um, first, I want to consider two examples, just culturally, of how people vainly try to make sense of this vanity in their life, like what we actually try to do with it. The first example you see in your outline is the non-religious version. It's to deny vanity and or deny God. 
So you just pretend either God or vanity doesn't exist. So there's there's kind of two ways you can do that. First is you can acknowledge vanity but deny God. What this looks like is hopelessness. Actually, when I worry about my daughters, I fit into this category because I'm forgetting about God. I'm just pretending he's not present. And so it's all on me and so I'm miserable because I'm taking God's job and I'm putting it on my shoulders. So when you worry, that's actually the category you fall under. Here's another non-religious approach to deny vanity and to deny God. Um, a great example of this is the beginning of the, the, the Lego movie, if you guys have seen that. It's like communism, sorry. But, you know, it's just everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. So everybody kind of chips in and they just kind of, if everybody does stuff and everybody works hard enough, we'll be fine. So that's, you kind of deny vanity and you deny God. Or there's more of a realistic or kind of a futuristic approach to this. And a great example of this is the song Imagine by John Lennon, if you guys have ever heard that. Imagine there's no heaven, above us only sky. It's easy if you try, and it goes on, and it's, we can all live as one if we just get rid of the idea of God. So in other words, it's, it says, um, we'll get rid of injustice and vanity when God's out of the picture. So you guys see how that works. Um, here's the, here's the, the problem there. But the evidence, when you think about communist countries and when you think about countries where, where they try to outlaw religion, the oppression remains. In some cases, it's actually worse. It doesn't solve the problem. So here's example number two. All that was the non-religious version of trying to deal with vanity. And example number two is the religious version, which actually, to be honest, drives me a lot more crazy than the non-religious version. It's assuming God's will based on your circumstances. Okay, here's an example so you guys know what I mean. Say you apply for a job. Like you really, really want that job. You have the interview, and they offer you the job, and so you take it, and here's what you might say. You might say, God has opened the door. Right? You guys ever do that? Okay, did he open the door? Yeah, he opened the door. But how do you know that an open door means God wants you to walk through it? How do you know that? Do you know how many open doors are out there? Now you might say, you know, the job market isn't that great. Yeah, but there's more than one job available. There's more jobs that you can do than just that job. But you see, in that situation, what happened? You came in and you wanted that job, and so you assumed God's will because it was your will, and by the way, it worked. You got the job. And you're going to keep doing that throughout your life until you don't get the job. See, say the interview happens and you don't get it. Well, since you really wanted it, the common response is what? You shut down. You get depressed. You think somehow you're out of God's will. Did I, oh, I sinned this morning. That's why I didn't get the job. I didn't, oh, I don't tithe. If I tithe, it would have worked. We do that. We just kind of rationalize based on the fact that we came in wanting the, the job. See, the, the problem is the same whether you get the job or not. You come in with expectations and then you define God's will based on the results. Do you, do you guys see how that happens? And just think of how many times daily everybody does this. It's not just when you get jobs. Every time something happens in your life, 
and you say, this is bad, you're saying God's will is bad. I mean, how are you not? That's basically what you're doing. And you can even flip side it. There's a lot of times, how many times has your Facebook status gone like this? Today was awesome. Watched a movie. Ate pizza. Good stuff happened. It's snowing, and I love snow. You know, the end. And you say, that's a good day. How do you know that's a good day? Maybe you just didn't do anything. and It was just kind of a lazy day. And good equals lazy. You're assuming that it's a good day based on what you think is a, is a good day. But it might not be true at all. Okay. What happens when we do that is we're actually trying to direct the movie using movie terminology. And, it, and it's really a miserable way to live because as we get disappointed, we start connecting that wrongly with the will of God. And life just becomes this this tidal wave. Here's an example from my own life. About two years ago, uh, Becky and I were in kind of a tight spot financially, and on top of that, my car just kind of went. It was a little two-seater. It was good for Becky and me, great gas mileage, fantastic deal. I was doing lots of driving, so it was just the perfect car dead on the side of the road. And I thought to myself... What you guys would have thought, this is horrible. And uh, so I shot out some emails, and, and through some mutual acquaintances, an old lady actually gave us her Buick. It's four doors. Gas mileage, yeah, not so good as the other one, but guess which car ran better? The one that was alive. And um, then, then guess what? Two months later, we found out to our surprise that we were pregnant with our oldest daughter, Rosie. How's that four-door car looking now? Yeah, that's looking pretty good. You can fit way more stuff in that. It's perfect. But at the time, I'm looking at this Buick, and I'm like, you know, it's cool because it's free, but I'm like, I want the other car back. I miss my two-door. See, I was angry at God because I was trying to play movie director. You know, here's what I said. I said, God, I'm going to use this two-door car over here, and then I'm going to save up for a bigger one, and then I'm going to buy that, and then, yeah, okay, we'll have kids. Right? That's how we work. We just kind of, I'm going to do stuff. I'm going to do the comfortable approach. But God said, no, I'm going to take away your two-door car so you have no car. Then I'm going to give you a car that you don't like. Then I'm going to give you a four-door one and fill it with babies. And then you're going to realize that it's a great car. (laughs) That's really what happened. And see, that story, here's the thing about the story. It fits together in hindsight, right? Like I'm up here, you know, I just had coffee this morning. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, that was really cool. But in the moment, it was brutal, was it? I mean, don't you have days like that where in the moment you're like, I don't understand what's happening. There were steps of faith and there were sleepless nights. And that's your next verse, verse 17 in a nutshell. No matter how hard we try to figure out what God is doing, We can't do it. And you might think, Dan, that's a cool story, but guess what? My car bombed out, and I didn't get a free one, right? Or you might say, Dan, I still have cancer. I still have a medical problem. My story isn't done yet. I don't know. Well, guess what? I don't know what's going to happen either. But God does, and just like my car, he's got better plans for you than you do. That's the operate, that's the way that you have to operate. But when we deny that and try to play director, of course we're not going to sleep. Because we're not at that part of the movie yet. 
And we can't cut ahead to that scene because the director's chair doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. This is the reason that trusting yourself to make sense of the vanity is the wrong response. Because you can't. You can't make sense of the vanity. It's above you. Verse 9-1, the deeds of the righteous and the wicked are in God's hand. Now that's hard because there doesn't seem to be real justice or real answers now. But there will be even if it's after you're long gone. In a previous sermon, uh, Reese told us that, that all of existence is like a tapestry, like a big quilt, like a big beautiful quilt that God made, except we can't see all of it. We just see our weird little square. That's all we get. And because of our hope in God, though, we can trust the whole of it, even though we only see a little bit of it. And then, because of our hope in God, we can respond rightly to the vanities of life, even if we don't know how they're going to play out. That takes us to point two. It's the right response to vanity. Accept your short life and live joyfully. I'm going to read chapter 9, verse 2 through 10. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. That he is, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, why do you think people try so hard to, to live? Like how, even when somebody's like old, you know, they're old and their body's just kind of falling apart. They can stay on life support as long as possible. It's because most people don't want to be out of the movie. Because it's just like, this is all I have. And they don't know what's next. And so they just desperately try to cling on. I mean, look at verse 2. Life is short and then you die, whether righteous or unrighteous. Here's an example, and I'll, I'm going to tie this back into the kind of the, the vanity of injustice that we saw earlier. Say a thief steals from a king, and the thief dies later in prison. The king dies first, and then the, the thief just kind of rots in prison for a while, he, and he dies. Um, what do they have in common? They're both dead. 
So it might seem, in a way, like it doesn't matter how they lived. They both died at the end. The response that some people have to realizing this is, so why bother with right and wrong? That's a, that's a huge belief that a lot of people are carrying around. It's like, you know, there's, there's no point, there's no afterlife, so we might as well just live how we want to live right now. Is that alright? You know, why should we bother with right and wrong? Verse 3, because there's something worse than dying. Solomon says it, he says, being a child of man, as in living your whole life apart from God, it's worse because it's really not better living. We've read that all throughout Ecclesiastes. It might look better, like that guy that's just totally living foolishly, but he's rich, and he just, he spends money however he wants because he doesn't run out. And it seems better, but he never really enjoys it. And then at the end of his life, he dies, and then maybe his kids kind of blow the inheritance. It's worse because it's really not better living. It might look better, but you never get the satisfaction. And so here's what happens. The wicked don't just die at the end. First, they live in a state of complete depravity. They're blind, they're insane, and then they die. That's how they live. Like, that's everything for them. But here's the thing in verse 4. No matter who you are, there's hope while you're alive because of God's mercy. Because the dead are dead. Solomon uses the example of a living dog being better off than a dead lion. And for a moment, you have to suspend your uh, mental imagery of fluffy, cute, adorable dogs. Um, to call somebody a dog was a tremendous insult. It was like calling them a scavenger or a thief. But on the other hand, lions were, and they still are, associated with nobility. So he's not talking about literally a dog and a, and a lion. That's, he's using a, a metaphor. And so all that this means is that it's better to be alive, even as that thief in prison, than it is to be the dead king. Because while the thief is alive, he still has an open door to know God. While you're alive, there's still hope. But while you're dead, when you're dead, you're dead. That's what we read in verse 5 and 6. Once the movie is over, it's over. Now that seems harsh, but do you see the hope in even that? It's acknowledging the reality of how vain the world is and accepting death, but trusting in God who can redeem everything. And that response actually frees you to live the right way. It leads to the opposite of the despair we saw in point one. It leads to joy even in the midst of toil. That's, that's point B, live joyfully. This is going to be a, a bunch of applications. First look at verse 7. Solomon calls us to go live for God and enjoy what we have because God has already approved what you do. In other words, in Christ, because of God, you are free to live. To apply that to the job scenario earlier, what that means is you're not religiously limited to that one job that you think is the job. You don't have to have it. There's tons of ways you can serve God. You can consider and pick from any number of open doors. What this means is that even if you don't know how your movie's going to end, you get to enjoy the show. God really is in control and he's good. So in a way, you can't pick wrong. 
And one of the best ways you can evidence this in your life is through the application that Solomon takes us to next. He says, take care of what God has graciously given you. And there's three ways that we're called to do do that. We're called to first take care of your stuff. Second, take care of your body. And third, take care of your spouse. First, let's look at take care of your stuff. Verse 8a, first half of verse 8, Solomon says, let your garments be white. This does not mean only wear white clothes. This does not mean wear a certain brand of white garments. In fact, it's not even speaking only to clothes. It's the general area of your possessions. Take care of them. Why? Because God's given them to you. For example, take care of your car. I'm going to go back to my car illustration. Sometimes it dies and you just can't control it. But sometimes, like in the case of my two-door car, I didn't do the best job of regular maintenance. Like, I did okay. Like, I would take it to the shop when I would hear funny noises, you know, and when the tires were like, you know, when you could see the metal. Okay, I'll take it. No, it wasn't that bad. But generally speaking, I just took it in when stuff broke. I didn't, like, do proactive maintenance. But even in my failure, God provided a replacement. But here's the thing. That's not a given. Here's what I mean. For example, just last year, some younger lady didn't yield at an intersection and totaled the Buick. One year after we got it. Smash. You're looking for a new car again. And guess what? No free cars came that time. Right? But Becky and I had been saving for a replacement because we kind of learned our lesson. And the ins- and so we took care of the Buick really well. The insurance company saw that and they gave us a, a good generous compensation. And so all I mean is since the future is uncertain, but God is good, here's what you do. You can pray for God to bless you with a car. Go for it. But then you save not expecting that that's his will. That's the response. You can pray for whatever you want, but you work as though saying, I don't know what God's going to do. When you expect it, when you say, oh, God's going to provide another free car, and then it doesn't happen, you get tangled up in that fear that I talked about in section one. So you take care of your stuff because God has given it to you. Other examples, take care of your house. Don't just work on it when when it leaks and the roof falls in. You replace it every, how often do you do that? Every 15 years, do they say? I don't know. I don't own a house. Um, or take care of your computer. Like, do you take care? Are you preventing against identity theft? You know, I, I used to be the guy who would just come up with the same password for every website because I just hate memorizing passwords. And it's like a stupid, like, it's like, you know, just an arbitrary number like my birthday. That's horrible. You're going to get money stolen from you so fast. Take care of your identity. Take care of your stuff because God gave it to you. And crazy stuff happens. Uh, secondly, it's the second half of verse 8. Take care of your body. Or as Solomon writes, let not oil be lacking on your head. Well, that was something that happened back in the day that we don't really do anymore. Perhaps some conditioner, I don't know. Um, for example, are you taking care of things like your weight and your blood pressure and your cholesterol? See, weight's, weight's kind of easy because people can see it. 
You know, you can tell when somebody has lost weight, but you, you can't tell when their cholesterol has gone up and down. So most people, like, they don't really worry about that because you can't see it. You know, also just like ask your, you know, if your parents are around, ask them, hey, what kind of health struggles did you have? Because I might have those same ones. Like if your parents struggle with high blood pressure, no matter what they do, that might be your lot in life. So go get it checked out. And the long-term effects of the things you choose to put in your body today are huge. I say that as I get ready to excuse you for donuts. <laughs> and again, to, to point back to section one, how do you sleep? Like, are you sleeping? Now, even as I say that, and before I move on, I got to pause because I don't want to confuse or hurt anybody here unnecessarily. So I've got to add this. Life is vain, so maybe the reason you're not sleeping is because of a medical condition you have. Maybe it's like, Dan, I'm trying to clear my mind, but my body's just going nuts. Or maybe you have genetic issues that make managing your weight almost impossible. Like, it just makes it so much harder for you to get any results than the guy next to you that just eats crazy and he just looks like a stick. And... um Maybe your garments aren't white because you have toddlers. I have, have toddlers. It says garments white. I'm like, that's cute. We have bleach. Um, or maybe it's even hard to take care of your car because you don't know any trustworthy mechanics. Seriously, maybe it's like, whenever I go, I get ripped off, so I'm just not going to go. In those events, i got to first clear up. Don't miss the big picture. Here's the big picture, guys. Your main hope is still Jesus. Like, that's still the guts of what has to go on. Because even in those hard seasons, you can trust him instead of your circumstances. You know, like, I'm not living for this world. Like, this world doesn't define me. I'm going to a better one. So even in those hard seasons, you can trust him. And so maybe your clothes are a little dingy. Maybe your car is running a little hard. But your heart is trusting the Lord, and that's the big issue. Like, this is not just take care of your car and you'll be fine. It's trust Jesus, and then you can enjoy him and live in the freedom of him no matter the state of your car. But in mind of that, take care of your car as much as you can. But as far as those tough seasons to help you practically, when it's hard to take care of even yourself, that's when the church, the body of Christ, is so helpful. It means you're not alone. It means you can ask for help or even if you don't, people are hopefully looking and they're going to see that you need help and they're going to jump in and hopefully you're humble enough to say thank you. I mean, think about it. If a family is is um, is is pregnant, you know, sign up and take them a meal. We just had two pregnancies. Like, are you on the meal list? Go take them a meal. Like, I know the first few weeks of having a kid. Like, it's absolutely crazy. I remember when, when, when our oldest daughter, Rosie, was born. Like, I was able to make, like, a microwave dinner, and I felt like a champion. Like, I was so excited. I was like, I took care of a baby, and I made food. This is the greatest. I mean, now it's like I'm doing way more stuff than that, but at the time, it was just crazy. Or maybe a family is just struggling with a difficult health issue. Like, the Maslow's are a perfect example of this. Are you helping them? I've actually seen a lot of people step up, and it's fantastic. Because it means they're not alone. And every time you show up, you're saying you're not alone. <clears throat> when you, how about when you see a family with young kids? 
volunteer to help and give them a, a date night or kind of hang with their kids in church. People do that for us all the time. I mean, think of the nursery workers. Go hug a nursery worker after this. When we do that, we're helping them to enjoy life as best they can because it's vain. <coughs> so do you see the opportunities in front of you? You're never bored because God is always worthy of the outpouring of your joy. Lastly, we're going to, we're going to look at the, the third example of what to take care of. And this is take care of your spouse. It's verse 9. I'm going to speak to uh, the, the married and the singles here. Married first. To the married couples out there, one application, go on a date. Seriously, when is the last time you did that? Like, I remember seasons where just months go by, and it's just crazy, and you just kind of get used to it. Again, the season might be hard. You might have to ask for help. You actually might need to go up to somebody personally and ask them. Not like just kind of chuck it out there on Facebook and hope somebody responds. You might need to actually go up and ask for help. And if you don't have a lot of money, you can actually be creative. That's that's hard. I think there's a lot of like culture out there that makes it look like when you go on a date, it has to be like really expensive. And then I think like, do I deserve to do this because my budget's kind of tight and I shouldn't be here? And so you kind of go above and beyond the budget, and then you feel guilty later words, and it, and it, and it actually really wasn't that restful for me at all. That can happen all the time. But some of my, my dates with, my best dates with Becky haven't cost me a dime. See, it's not about showing off, it's about drawing near. Some of the best times we have are just checking in. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? How can I do better? And, um, and yeah, again, if, if, if you're not going on dates, fight for date night. It's really, really hard, but it's totally worth it. You always realize how worth it is, like, when you get back from the date, but don't wait till then. Like, just trust that it's going to be awesome. And uh, to my single friends first, and I'm primarily speaking of the bachelors here, one of the reasons <laughs> you might not be married is because you don't, like, wash your clothes or take care of your body like you don't do the first... I'm playing. <laughs> so, some it's true, but... No, the opportunity you get, the opportunity you get if you're single, because opportunity is real, like, don't buy the thing where it's like, you're not complete, don't buy that. The opportunity you have is you get to prepare yourself and the people around you for marriage no matter if you get married here on earth or not. Men, you can help the single ladies know Jesus more and prepare them to be loving, caring wives. Get this, even if they don't marry you. like You, just, you don't just have to work on the one you want to marry. You don't have to do that. You can care for all of them. And ladies, you can prepare the men around you to be selfless, humble, brave husbands, even if they marry somebody else. Because here's the thing. One day, the singles and the married couples, guess what we're going to have all in common? We're all going to be dead. Sorry, that was morbid. But then, the real marriage to Jesus, the one that lasts forever, that starts. That's the hope that gives us assurance when life seems upside down and backwards. See, Solomon says, when you look at the last verse, Solomon says, enjoy life because you're going to Sheol or you're going to the place of the dead. That's what he says. 
But here's the thing. Solomon didn't yet have a piece of the movie script that we have. Jesus came and died for us so that this earth is not as good as it gets. And whenever you live in fear, it's because you're believing that. So here's the hope as we wrap up. Our future here is uncertain. But even in the vanity, God is directing it and he is good so we can trust him. So as we look at the last verse, we can do whatever our hands find us to do in Christ. We can do it with everything we have, even though life is short because he gives us a better way to live. And so our joyful response to that is to care for the things that he's given us and care for the people he's given us. Our circumstances might not seem happy here from time to time, but our joy isn't in them. Happiness can be taken away from you in a second, but joy, no, that's indestructible. And our joy is in the Lord. So as we close, consider this. The application is to go do stuff. Don't be bored. Share the love of Jesus because he has made you alive. And when life seems vain, we can remember the director and enjoy the show. Let me pray for us.